Howdy, folks. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of TGC Midweek. This week on the podcast, Michael and I discuss giants, Jehovah's Witnesses, and unbelieving family members. We appreciate you tuning in at the table with you, as always. Jacob McCandless, Michael Novak. Michael, what's going on, man? Uh, Not a whole lot. Buckle up, people. Here we go. Yeah, this one will be fun. So we'll just get right into it here. So um, this is technically the fourth installment of our evangelism series where we answer all the questions regarding evangelism. Um, We got one. We also got two other doozies that we're going to dive into. So the first one refers to this sort of mysterious people that's referred to a couple of times in the Old Testament um, called the Nephilim. Mm -hmm. And it seems like if you're doing a chronological Bible reading plan, every couple of weeks you come across a reference to the Nephilim. First in Genesis 6, uh, where it talks about the sons of God and the and the daughters of man breeding together, and there on the earth were the Nephilim. So mm-hmm. who are these people? What's up with them? Very interesting question. One of those questions that folks have found interesting to think about and work their way through mm-hmm. uh, from the very beginning of the church. And the passage, as you mentioned, that's in mind is Genesis 6. Uh, Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. I'm just going to read it to give us some context of what we're talking about. Uh, This is what it says. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And so the question is, who are or what are these Nephilim? And through the history of the church, there's really been two main views that have been taken uh, on who these uh, creatures or people or uh, or whoever it is, who, who are these uh, folks, the, the Nephilim? And I think it's important uh, to realize or to um, understand that uh, the word Nephilim uh, comes from our Hebrew word nephal, which uh, is translated to fall. It means to fall. And so uh, the Nephilim are the fallen ones, um, would be kind of a literal translation that we would give uh, to these people. And uh, I'll just outline the two views that have been taken through church history and um, let you decide as the listener, I guess. And Jacob, feel free to ask questions uh, along the way as you normally do. Uh, But the first view is basically um, that fallen angels, the sons of God, uh, came down to earth and had relations with uh, women, um, the daughters of man, and they bore children which were some sort of supernatural hybrid between angels and humans. Okay, this is getting weird. Super weird. (laughs) Um, And uh, and Genesis 6 leads you to believe that because this was occurring, the flood happens immediately afterwards. Mm. Um, Evil and sin were reaching an apex uh, to such a a degree that, that God had to come and judge what was happening on earth. Um, and so that is the first uh, view of what's happening here. Uh, and there's some other scriptural places that you can go to uh, support that view. Uh, one place specifically is the first chapter of Job. In the first chapter of Job, you see that the Lord calls Satan into his presence, and he gathers 
before the Lord's presence with uh, the sons of of God, um, referring to angels. And so the other time that this phrase sons of God is used in the Old Testament, it is referring to Mm -hmm. angels in the presence of the Lord. Uh, And so um, adherence to that view would point to Job chapter 1 to say sons of God is referring to angels that have fallen. And then if you go to uh, Jude in the New Testament, Jude chapter 1 verse 6 says this, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as in Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural flesh. Um, So Jude here talking about fallen angels uh, who were engaged in some sort of sexual relation pursuing unnatural desires or unnatural flesh is another spot that adherence to this first view mm-hmm. would go to to make the case that these are fallen angels having relationship uh, with, uh, with women. Um, and so that's the first view. The second view um, is a view that was held by Augustine, held by John Calvin. First view was also held by early church fathers, specifically Tertullian, um, but the second view um, holds, and it's called the Sethite view uh, in a lot of circles. It's how theologians refer to it. Uh, when Cain murdered Abel, um, basically God gave Adam and Eve another son named Seth. And in Genesis chapter 4, at the very end, it says, Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so early on in the book of Genesis, you have these two lines. You have the Cain line and the Seth line. And a lot of theologians look at Genesis 6 and the Nephilim, and specifically the sons of God and the daughters of man, and they say the sons of God refer to the Sethite line, and they were basically engaging in relationship with the daughters of man who would have been from the line of Cain, mm-hmm. and they would have been intermingling, marrying, having relations in what I guess Paul would refer to in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as being unequally yoked. And so you've got God worshipers engaging with non-God worshipers, uh, and it produces these Nephilim, or these fallen ones, um, who were old uh, and the men of renown, meaning they basically took power mm-hmm. and probably exercised that power in evil, wicked ways, which leads us to the middle of Genesis chapter 6, which is Noah and the flood. Mm-hmm. So God actually bringing judgment upon uh, these evil, wicked people um, who were men of renown. Yeah. Um, so those are the two views. Uh, like I said, it sounds so surreal in sci-fi, that first view, but it is a view that's been held uh, by folks in the church, um, and it, it, it has some support in other areas of Scripture. Uh, I personally uh, tend to lean towards the second view, um, the Sethite line view, um, where the Nephilim or the fallen ones are sons of Seth and daughters of Cain, mm-hmm. and they're intermarrying with one another, and they're losing any sense of the worship of God in their life and in this world. Yeah, you can definitely go down some 
weird and bizarre rabbit trails if you Google Nephilim on the internet. Yes. <laughs> everything from um, the things that we just mentioned to aliens. So it gets super weird, super fast. There's another view that um, is, is referenced in the Reformation Study Bible that mentions the Nephilim being um, um, descendants from Lamech, who was sort of a, a despotic kind of figure from the line of Cain, who mm-hmm. says um, he basically brags about how <clears throat> um, if Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold, mm-hmm. basically Cain was so wicked, but Lamech himself is so much more wicked. And so um, the Nephilim were descendants from him and kind of tribal rulers, I guess you might say. And that would that would support the line of they took his wives any they chose, yes. basically being this sort of um, stable bandit, if you will, mm-hmm. being able to take any woman that they chose as, as a wife. And then the Nephilim kind of descended from those, and they were mighty, mighty warriors, perhaps yep. tall of stature. Yes. <clears throat> And I think the best way to understand Nephilim is the fallen ones, Mm -hmm. which makes sense of this view that you're articulating in the Sethite view. Yeah. Um, I guess it would make sense of the first view as well, but uh, it seems to be the easiest reading, uh, that second Mm -hmm. view, in my opinion. Yeah, and and the second view, the Sethite view, would would correspond really well with this this sort of duality of persons, of peoples that kind of runs through the entirety of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Starting from Genesis 3, you have where God says um, to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and yours, Yes, paraphrasing. Um, basically, you have the seed of the woman, you have the seed of Satan, and then you have the line of Cain, and you have the line of yep. Seth, and then you have the Israelites and the Canaanites, and then in the New Testament, you have the elect and the reprobate. So yep. this this idea of God, since the basically the, the covenant of redemption was sort of begun in Genesis 3, basically setting apart some person and they've kind of gone by different names from the seed of the woman to the elect. And then this other group that's, that's not part of that group. And so the second view that kind of duality of, of peoples kind of aligns with that, I think. Yes, I agree. And, uh, and and then it aligns with the fact that God sends the flood and starts over with Noah and his family in a completely new line. Um, but after, uh, they get off, uh, the ark, then all of a sudden you see his three sons repopulating the earth yeah. and one of those sons taking the line that eventually leads us to Jesus. Yeah. Um, so that would imply then that the, that the Nephilim were wiped out by the flood, but you see this, this term reoccurring a couple of times in the Old Testament, specifically in Numbers 13, where mm-hmm. spies were sent out to investigate the land of Canaan. They come back and say, can't do it, guys. We saw the Nephilim there, and they're huge. Yes, and that's the only other time that you see the word Nephilim mm-hmm. used in the Old Testament. And like you said, Numbers 13, and it says, There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we, uh, so, uh, and so we seemed to them. Uh, and so it has led folks to believe, like you mentioned, Jacob, that the Nephilim were some sort of giant race. Um, although... Um, that is the only spot in our Old Testament scriptures that would lead us to make that conclusion. Mm -hmm. And as we were talking a little bit before, it makes sense that they were trying to exaggerate Mm 
Yeah. At least the 10 spies, you know, Caleb and Joshua came back with a good report and said, let's take the land. The other 10 spies were trying to dissuade Israel from moving into the promised land. And so they had a lot of reason to exaggerate mm-hmm. um, the size of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan when it, they came back. to. Get yeah, it's pretty clear from the, the connotation that's within the text that they were being deliberately manipulative and dishonest and trying to basically scare Moses yes. and the other leaders away from yep. from taking the land. Yeah. But what about in 2 Samuel there's this reference to giants in 2 Samuel 21 where uh David David is continuing the war against the Philistines and it refers to a number of of I guess just great warriors of the Philistines that David and his mighty men defeated and it refers to them as descended from giants. Mm-hmm. And somehow along the way giants and Nephilim I guess because of this passage in Numbers have kind of been connected. So what's what's that all about? Were there actually giants that the Philistines were descended from? Yeah, uh, it, it, it's interesting because I, there are areas of the Old Testament that do speak of giants. And if you look just at our text, when it talks about the Nephilim, uh, you don't get any sense from Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, that these were giants. Mm-hmm. Um, it simply says, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And then if you go to Numbers 13, that's where you get a sense that they were bigger than normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, a lot of times, though, and it depends on how deep in the weeds we want to get tonight, um, you'll see the Nephilim translated in some translations of the Bible as giants. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll see the word giant instead of Nephilim. The giants were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the Son of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. And this is due to the fact that the Septuagint and the Vulgate translations of the Old Testament um, actually uh, used um, a word for giant when they translated this word Nephilim uh, which is better translated in the Hebrew as fallen ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Vulgate and the Septuagint translated it with the word giant, and a lot of translations that look at the Septuagint and Vulgate have stuck with that word in order to describe the Nephilim as giants. And so I think that that's where we normally get the idea that these Nephilim were giants mm-hmm. or bigger than normal alongside Numbers 13. But when you just look at Genesis chapter 6 and you translate it from the Hebrew uh, as the fallen ones, there's nothing to lead us to believe that they were any bigger than normal yeah. people. And so um, it's almost like a tall tale, uh, yeah. and it's kind of grown uh, in people's minds that the Nephilim might have been giants. They might have been. Um, if, you know, Numbers 13, maybe they weren't exaggerating. Maybe they were telling the truth in that instance. But if you've only got those two instances that refer to the Nephilim, then I don't think we can necessarily conclude that they were giants. Mm-hmm. Um, although you do see giants in other areas of the Old Testament, specifically the most popular one in First Samuel 17, Goliath. Um, and, uh, and so they were around, um, they were bigger than normal, uh, men. Um, but who knows if the Nephilim were those or not. Yeah. And it's important to realize too, that, um, a lot of the ancient sources like the Dead Sea Scrolls and very, very early, uh, I guess just copies of the, the Old Testament refer to Goliath as being about six cubits. Um, in the ESV, he's translated nine cubits in a span, but other, uh, you know, just 
ancient sources have him at six cubits or something like that, which basically translates to six and a half feet tall, which is tall. Um, and, and to a, you know, an ancient person who might've been, you know, a mighty warrior might've been a, a five foot five dude. Um, six foot six, pretty tall. Yeah. Might seem like right. a giant. Yep. A foot bigger than you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is just sort of an interesting topic. This is, this, in terms of like theological significance, this is probably pretty far down the list. I think <laughs> I <would say> so. <laughs> um, it's more just a fun topic to discuss and debate. Um, but it does raise this. I don't know. Anytime I read Genesis, especially like pre Abraham Genesis, the, the parts of Genesis before Abraham, it just kind of blows my mind how uh, spooky it, it can yep. be and just how ancient it sounds. Sure. I, I, I don't know. There's just so much that seems almost from a different world. And, yep. and I don't say that it is, it just yeah. seems bizarre. A lot yep. of the things that you read. So Absolutely. Um, this is, this can be kind of a fun topic and interesting topic to, to read about. And if you're coming across this for the first time, Nephilim, and you're like, what the heck is this? Yeah. This is a, this is a capital N word that is written with zero context. And, um, the audience that Moses is writing to probably knew exactly what this was, the, the specific people that this was referring to. Yes. This was not a mystery to them. That's right. And it, it, the fact that the uh, the spies come back and refer to the, the inhabitants of Canaan mm-hmm. as like the Nephilim uh, would lead us to believe what you just said, yeah. that it was a story that was known uh, to uh, Old Testament believers um, they would have been familiar with these Nephilim, probably have been told by their parents and grandparents about who they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's almost taken for granted in Numbers 13 when they say they seemed as the Nephilim to us that everybody understood exactly what they were talking about. Yeah. Um, where we have to do a little bit more work to figure out huh, what are they talking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. All right, so um, let's move on to this other topic. Um, you sure you want to move on? <laughs> this is fun. Do you have anything else no, to, I don't. to add to I this? Don't. I'm, yeah, I'm playing. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this is fun stuff. So the, the, we got another question today about um, Jehovah's Witnesses. Just kind of wanting to understand um, what those folks are all about. Um, what do you? I, I know almost nothing about Jehovah's Witnesses mm-hmm. other than they used to leave flyers in the laundry room of my college dormitory. Yeah. Um, but what, what's up with Jehovah's Witnesses? What do they believe? Specifically, um, why don't they recognize the deity of Christ? Yeah. Uh, well, um, you've probably all witnessed Jehovah's Witnesses in your lifetime. Um, they are very— Probably kind of, around dinner time. Dinner time. They'll knock on uh, your door, and they're very passionate about uh, proselytizing yeah. um, for their faith, which is to be commended um, in terms of uh, their passion for spreading a message that they believe is true. Mm-hmm. Um, now the problem, I guess, uh, we would have with that is we believe that it's a heretical message. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it's basically thrown out the Orthodox Christian faith in favor of something that they have crafted. And when I think of the Jehovah's Witnesses, one of the things that I think about is interesting just personally is they were started in 1870 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, mm. And it came out of um, kind of a Bible student movement. Um, And the fact that it was started in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1870 by a handful of people, um, this movement that now has somewhere near 8 million followers worldwide, uh, which worldwide isn't very large. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, you know, less than the size of New York City. Um, 
it just it surprises me that they can even garner that much of a following um uh having been founded so late um with a, a few folks that i guess were charismatic mm-hmm. um and had an idea of what the bible taught that was completely in contradiction to what the church throughout history has taught for centuries. Yeah. But don't don't Jehovah's Witnesses also hold to the significance of the 144,000 in Revelation and they hold that that's like the actual number of saved persons? Yeah, well that is significant uh and they do reference that often. And the way I understand it is they believe those 144,000 are special believers that will basically rule and reign with Jesus in God's new kingdom but they don't limit the number of followers oh, or Jehovah's okay. Witnesses to that number. I was just doing the math, and 8 million sounded like it was larger. Yeah, than there's going to be a lot of people left out if that's the case. <laughs> um, but that's not technically what they believe. Okay. I think that's a common misconception. Gotcha. Um, so it's basically, I guess, uh, a way to look at it, which might be a little, I don't mean it to be pejorative, but a two-tier system. Mm-hmm. You've got 144,000 that are reigning with Christ, but other followers can be involved. Um, and still be, I guess, saved sure. um, in their theology. Um, so Jehovah's Witnesses, they do not believe in the Trinity. Um, they would say that the Holy Spirit is simply a force sent by God that does his bidding. Um, he is not a person um, at work in this world and in people's hearts and lives. Um, they would hold that Jesus is not God. Um, that he was created by God, um, and he holds a special place. Um, I actually believe that they think that the archangel Michael um, was created, and he is who came down in the person of Jesus, if I understand hmm. their theology correctly. Um, and so he was a created being um, uh, and um, not equal uh, to God. And so... Um, if you encounter a Jehovah's Witness uh, on um, uh, during the week or uh, during some certain day, um, you know they're probably going to try to convince you that Jesus is not deity, mm-hmm. um, that um, uh, that he's not that he's not God, um, and so they're not Trinitarian. Um, and let's see, what else you need to know about Jehovah's Witnesses? I think they don't celebrate birthdays or something. They yeah. also don't celebrate Christmas. Yep, they don't celebrate Christmas or Easter, which makes sense. I'm uh, with them on the birthday things. So yeah, I think birthdays right. are silly. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't do any work. Your mom did all the work. Go buy her a present. <laughs> That's right. Um, it should be mom's, mom's <laughs> honor day. Uh, but yeah, they don't celebrate Christmas and Easter, which does make sense because they don't believe Jesus is equal with God. Yeah. And those uh, holidays do center around the incarnation mm-hmm. of Jesus and his um, and his bodily resurrection, which they also, if I'm not mistaken, do not believe in. They believe really? in the spiritual resurrection mm. of Jesus. Um, they also don't celebrate other holidays or birthdays, uh, really in an attempt to remain separate from the world. Um, and... So yeah, I, those are some some helpful things to have in mind um, when you think about Jehovah's Witnesses and when you encounter them, um, at least to know a little bit about what they believe so that you could counter it or have yeah. uh, a coherent, intelligent conversation with them um, yeah. as they stop by your door or you see them out and about. Sure. So, so I don't think this was meant to sort of tie into our evangelism series, but we can kind of take it that direction. So let's say a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your, your door and... and is, is trying to tell you about these things. 
what should our response be? How should we respond to those claims that they make and actually maybe try to get them to think about uh, the claims that we would make at Trinity Grace? Yeah, I, I think that uh, one of the things that they'll probably take you to is uh, is John chapter 1, where they talk about... Um, I'll flip there real fast. They also have their own translation of the scriptures that they typically use. Um, and so they probably would not recognize the NIV or the ESV. I think before they created their own translation, they did hold to the King James Version of the Bible. That was their translation. Um, but one of their big things is in John 1, um, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in their translation of the Greek there in verse 1, they would say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. They add a um, a definite article there. It's not a definite article. Independent they, article. They, yeah, independent article, uh, a before God. Um, and... You know, the thing that I have seen make Jehovah's Witnesses a little bit nervous is when they would come to uh, and find themselves in our seminary housing, and they didn't know that it was seminary housing, (laughs) and they would knock on the door, and um, and they would immediately take somebody to John 1-1 to try to show them, look, this translation says that, you know, Jesus was not God. He was a God. He was like God. Um, and then, uh, the seminary student saying, well, wait a second, let me go grab my Greek Bible. Uh, and then all of a sudden <laughs> they would say, well, it's time to go. Um, oh, because man. in the Greek, you don't see that, yeah. um, that independent article, yeah. uh, or did you say indefinite, indefinite article? Yeah. Indefinite article. I'm not a very, um, English was, yeah, you don't see that indefinite <laughs> article. Uh, and so, um, Easy way to kind of talk about that if you wanted to get into the translation aspect of things. Um, But beyond that, you think about the Trinity, you think about the Great Commission, you could go there uh, to see a Trinitarian formula. Um, uh, You could go to Acts chapter 2, where, you know, we receive the Holy Spirit at Mm -hmm. Pentecost. Um, and just ask questions. What do you do with that? Um, how do you understand this? Uh, you see Jesus receiving and accepting worship throughout the Gospels as though he is deity. Yeah. Um, and I, so I think specifically where he says, I think to the Pharisees, you know that no one can forgive sins except for God alone, and then turns to the man on the mat and says, your sins are forgiven. Yeah. Time and time again through the Gospels, you see him not... Um, not pushing worship away. He's receiving worship. He forgives sins. He talks about how I and the Father are one. Um, and so it seems like there's lots of instances that if they wanted to have a conversation, you could go to and simply ask them, well, what do you think about this mm-hmm. passage? Um, and get their perspective on how they would interpret um, specific passages in the scriptures. Yeah. At the end of the day, um, I'm not quite sure how fruitful that would be. Yeah. Um, I think that they're on a pretty um, uh, uh, strict mission um, to get out there and and win people uh, to their side of the argument. Um, and normally, um, if they come to your door and you have the uh, ability and the desire to invite them in, it wouldn't be a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might be able to learn some things uh, about their beliefs and their system. You might be able to show them love and hospitality, uh, and you might be able to ask them some good questions that get their gears turning mm-hmm. and get them thinking about what they believe. Um, and so a conversation uh, would be welcome. But like we've talked about in the past, 
a lot of times it takes uh, multiple, multiple touches with somebody sure. for them to start thinking about things in a way that leads them to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. So you might be, um, like we talked about, uh, um, watering a seed, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and who knows how God might use you in your hospitality in conversation in somebody's life. Sure. So speaking of having to touch someone several times with the gospel— um, we got another question today that's specifically on this topic of evangelism that we've been talking about for three weeks. Um, do you have any tips or, or just general thoughts around how you might evangelize to family members, who, family members who are not Christians? Yeah, um, that's a tough question. And when I think about that question, it immediately uh, brings to mind the idea of Jesus trying to do ministry in his hometown of Nazareth. And in Mark chapter 6, you actually see him uh, going to Nazareth with his disciples, um, and he's attempting to do ministry there. Um, And I'll just read it. It starts uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 2, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could not do mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And so... It reminds me of the fact that oftentimes evangelism and having a prophetic voice with our family is sometimes the hardest mm-hmm. work that we're called to do. Um, and a lot of times we can't have an appropriate prophetic voice with our family members simply because they know us better than anyone else knows us. And you get a sense from the folks that see Jesus, they're like, we know his mommy and daddy. Mm-hmm. We know his brothers and sisters. He used we, to build tables. Yeah, he used to build tables here in this town. Like, And you're telling me he's coming back claiming that he's the he's got good news for us and mm-hmm. he's the Messiah of the world. Um, and so uh, you also think about this idea in ministry of how hard it is for ministers to go back to their hometown and do effective ministry. Um, because once somebody knows you, has seen the worst sides of you, it's harder for them to tune in and listen to what you might have to say, no matter how deeply you've been changed by God. Yeah, uh, it reminds me of a saying that Dave Ramsey has on his uh, on his podcast that he he uh, talks about a lot with children trying to engage their parents with financial advice. He says, "Once somebody's powdered your butt, they don't want your advice on sex or finances." <laughs> and I think you could add, uh, "They don't want your advice on spirituality." Yeah. Um, in that as well. Um, and it's just it's just recognizing that that's a reality. Um, that's all I'm trying to say mm-hmm. is it's hard um, to talk to and have a prophetic voice with those that have seen you at your best and at your worst. Yeah. And so how do you effectively love and engage your family members? I think you do it like you do uh, with other folks. Uh, you do it in small steps. You do it uh, by walking through open doors and as opportunities uh, provide themselves to you to speak words of truth and encouragement and hope to your family members. I think that we can do it with our family members more uh, with deed as Mm. opposed to word. I like how Young Life talks about earning the right to be heard. 
I think you can apply that to your family members uh, specifically. We've got to earn the right to be heard by them. I think if they look at our lives and see how we love and see the change that's occurring in our lives and they ask questions, that provides an opportunity for us to speak into the situation because we've been invited. And then lastly, I just say that oftentimes we think of prayer as a last resort, but with our family members, uh, we know them best. Mm -hmm. We know where they struggle. We know their needs better than anyone else. And so we can pray for them in more specific, unique ways than most people can. And so what does it look like to pray for God to be at work in their hearts and lives in those special, unique ways that we know about? And then what does it look like to ask God to provide opportunities for their ears to be open so that we might speak words of truth and hope into their lives? But I always do think about Mark chapter 6 and Jesus and how he wasn't able to do much ministry in his hometown. And I think that there's something to be said for that. Yeah, there's no need to be ashamed when your family just won't hear what you're trying to say because— They've seen they've seen the worst at you, or the people you know from your hometown, your old friends, or something. They've seen the worst that you have to offer, and um, you know, in certain contexts, you may have just frankly lost the right to be heard. And that's one of the things that you just might have to accept. And one of the things that you can do, I think, is to point people to other resources yes. that are not you, so that they can hear the message and not see the messenger, not see you, the messenger, yes. but point them to books or podcasts. Um, especially if there's maybe a midweek podcast that your yeah. church does that you think is, is pretty good. You might point them to that one. That's right. Um, but that's just, yeah, it takes the pressure off you. It's an idea. easy thing to do. It's passing the buck a little bit, but yeah, they still get the message. So, but it's a fresh voice yeah. and a voice they might be able to hear and they might be able to receive a resource. Like you say, I love that. Put them in front of Jesus in different ways. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So, uh, those were the three questions that we had. Definitely kind of a doozy of a, of a Q and a night. Um, Do you have any final thoughts on any of these before we wrap it up? I think I'm done. Okay. (laughs) That's Michael saying he's ready to go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) What do you say? Giants, Jehovah's Witnesses, and unbelieving family members. Yeah. Covered it all tonight. Yes, we have. Um, Okay. I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up there. Um, Guys, as always, if you have questions, um, this podcast is firstly and foremostly a question and answer format. So if you have questions related to relatively obscure scriptural uh, uh, concepts like the Nephilim or, or just whatever, you know, send them in. Um, if you have questions, we want to at least kind of offer a response to those. Um, you can find the, the number and email address to send those into, um, in the bulletin on Sunday mornings. Um, we'll always devote some time, no matter what we're talking about to, um, to chat a little bit about the questions that you have. So, um, I think we'll just leave it there. And until next week, guys, this has been Trinity Grace midweek. We'll see you later.